0: Welcome to the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre podcast. The Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre unites over 1,200 world-leading biologists, chemists, physicists, engineers, mathematicians, computer scientists, nurses, clinicians, and allied healthcare professionals from across Cambridge and the UK to tackle cancer from every angle. Our mission is to end death and disease caused by cancer through research, treatment, and education. We are detecting cancer at its earliest stage and are developing personalized treatments for every patient through facilitating new collaborations and driving the translation of new scientific discoveries into clinical applications to improve patient care. By working together across a range of different disciplines, our members are breaking down the barriers between the laboratory and the clinic, enabling patients to benefit from the very latest innovations in cancer science.
1: talking to Dr. Kelly Fagan-Robinson, Leverhume and Isaac Newton Trust ECR Fellow in the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of Cambridge, and we're going to talk about the shared risk MOOC that is about to launch. So, hi Kelly, could you first give me a bit of background on yourself and tell me what does an anthropologist do?
2: So, I'm a social anthropologist, which means that I'm interested in anything that contributes to our understanding of what it is to be human. And that's not looking necessarily at the inside out. So it's not necessarily about the interiority of the body, although it could be. What we're really looking at, particularly in my work, I look at the social shapes that give us hints into the ways that people connect with one another and when they fail to connect. And I like to say that I'm an anthropologist of misunderstanding or communication breakdown. So that's my sort of area of work. Um, And I could tell you a little bit about the work that I did from my postgraduate degree would that be useful
1: sure and um, just so, be- before you do that just define what an anthropologist is what do you, what, what in your head is an anthropologist
2: so i always tell people that it, an anthropologist is a person who studies what it means to be human but That's... the qualification of that is to look at the ways in which we understand what it means to be human through the through our behaviors through the things we do with one another I think a lot of people have a conceptualization of anthropology as being about culture elsewhere, somewhere out far away. Um, And certainly that is part of its origin story, part of the moment of exploration and empire. And that's also a problem within anthropology. But in modern iterations of what anthropology is and does, it reckons with that past, but it also looks at all different people, anywhere people are found, to understand what it means to be human.
1: Thanks, great uh, explanation. So yeah, tell me a bit about your particular research interest and your particular area of interest.
2: I came to social anthropology after having worked in other spaces in the world. And one of the jobs that I had was working on language resources for the National Health Service in the UK as well as the Department for Work and Pensions, we were a private company that I was working with. And as part of that project, we were charged with delivering sign language, videophonic sign language. And this is back in the early 2000s when this was not a sort of foregone conclusion, when Skype had only just launched. It was not the way it is now with sort of the ubiquity of Zooms and FaceTimes and everything else. And I was partnered with a deaf partner who was a sign language user, a native sign language user with a really long heritage of deafness in his family. And his wife is an interpreter. They founded a company called Significant, Sign If I Can't. And the idea was to bridge this gap between professional services, whether it was in job seeking support or doctors in the NHS, trying to communicate with deaf people and allowing for the basic human privacy that you would expect going into the doctor. So someone who speaks English fluently will go into the doctor and expect to see only the doctor and be able to talk about some of the things which may be very private. But when you use English as a second language, or indeed, if you are a British Sign Language user, oftentimes there has been in the past and still persists in being an expectation that you will use an interpreter who is not a qualified interpreter, who's a neighbor or a child of yours or a friend. And this means potentially sharing very intimate details about your life inappropriately in in these settings. And so, one of the things that we were tasked with doing was, was delivering this video chronically. And because of Jeff and Brigitte's expertise, that was actually more of a success than it could have been because there were real technical problems within it. But this really sparked within me an interest in communication and communication breakdown. And what is at stake when we have these moments of cohesion or disintegration when we're trying to connect with one another and how often it's not just about the technical breakdown, although it can be, it's also about a failure to empathize and understand what another human being needs in those situations and how we might be able to bridge a gap in a more creative outside the box way, which is exactly what that company did. So when I did my postgraduate work, I was at that time working for a deaf theater company called Definitely Theater. And that sparked within me a real desire to understand this problem better by by thinking about it for a very long time. So I started (laughs) doing it by doing a master's degree in anthropology and worked with Definitely Theatre on my master's thesis within theatre, looking at uh, different processes of sign language. And then moved on to my PhD, which was a PhD in anthropology, but which focused on public policy and heritage to look at how things that were Successful within theatrical practice on stages with non-signers just didn't seem to quite work in institutional settings, and why that might be, and what happened in terms of failure of conjoint understanding.
1: Mm-hmm, really interesting. And so, then, how did you then get into working with oncology and cancer research?
2: Yeah, it doesn't necessarily seem to be a natural progression, mm-hmm. but actually, it's very, very straightforward. In fact, I was called by a colleague of mine, Ignacio Tiaga who had already been doing work with Cancer Research UK. And she had been given, awarded a a pump priming project along with Marion McDonald's two colleagues in the Department of Social Anthropology at at Cambridge to look at, it was a project called Elusive Risks. And they were looking at the people who fail to present in different settings, whether for screenings or within clinical trials, and therefore are left out of the data. The question was, how come? And of course, the challenge you have within that kind of uh, a problem is that just, you know, the very fact that people are not presenting means that they're very unlikely to present if a researcher says, why aren't you presenting? So um, we had to really think a little bit differently. And it turned out that some of my experiences, because I approach anthropology primarily through the lens of communication, I really look at the way people not just speak, but also how they physically interact with one another, what's known as proxemics in our work, how closely people stand to one another, what that tells you about their power dynamics, their hierarchies. They asked me to join the project, and we ended up looking at different ways of thinking about care and risk, which are very common themes within cancer research, but without any preconceived notions as to what care and risk might mean in different settings, whether it was with homeless people who were sleeping rough, undocumented migrants, um, men over the age of 50 who are often not within clinical trials, women over the age of 60, people who come from ethnic minority backgrounds within the UK, gypsy Roman travelers, Irish travelers. Uh, it was a really heterogeneous group of people. And we focused primarily on Cambridgeshire and the Peterborough area to work with different people there. And that's how I started working with people. And we didn't ask them about cancer. What we asked them about was their experiences of risks in their lives and their experiences of care in their lives.
1: And so why is risk such an interesting area to you? Why that area in particular?
2: Well, I guess it, it comes a lot from the outcomes of that study. And one of the key findings that we had was that we went out there assuming, as I think many people would, that care was a positive thing and risk was a negative thing. And when we went into the field, what we found out was that for a lot of the people we spoke with, not all of them, but many, many of the people we spoke with, and there were over the course of a six-week study, we met with about 150 different people. They were telling us that care was actually the negative and risk was more positive. So for example, within many of the people who were more transient members of the population who didn't necessarily have a settled status or a permanent home, Care was the sort of capital C care, so potentially their children being taken into care, for example, or um, care being part of punitive measures because they would, had been taking drugs and now were in, going through a detoxification process, or indeed institutional care that meant someone was really sick and going to die, such as was the perception of cancer in most people's lives, that it was a latent problem and that it was likely to be fatal and therefore not something necessarily worth addressing. So that was the first thing we found. And with risk, we found that people often saw risk as a stepping outside of themselves and um, challenging themselves to do something differently to change their lives for the better. And that might mean something really, again, contrary to what a lot of people would assume, moving away from family and friends because they were bad influences, for example, or uh, ignoring certain Uh, problems in favor of solving what they perceived to be much larger problems. And that it was iterative, it changed every day, and it kind of grew day on day, depending on what your needs were and what your pressure points were. So risk to me from that perspective felt like a very movable object, if you like. And I think when I started thinking more in terms of cancer, and we started using this as as a way of thinking through the analysis of what does this then mean for cancer risk in these people's lives... Magnus and I started talking about it a lot, and I thought this is something I really want to understand better, and that's how the skills exchange with University of Manchester came about,
1: uh,
2: with the International Alliance uh, for Early Detection of Cancer, the the Alliance.
1: Yeah, nice. And so, I guess you've you've talked about it a little bit already, how different groups of people understand and define risk. So could you give me examples of, say, for example, how an anthropologist would define risk, and then perhaps you could give me an example of how a clinician would define risk and then moving on to how a patient would define risk, because obviously they define things in very different ways. So it would be interesting to see that that sort of progression.
2: It's a really interesting question and it is the question, if you like, and it is what the skills exchange ended up being about, because for me, and I guess this is because I'm an anthropologist, the way that I approach understandings of risk is by watching how people approach understanding risk. And I think that is really different in each of the disciplines that I've come across within the skills exchange. So it primarily was supposed to be about risk prediction modeling. And so for example, when you're talking about risk prediction modeling, you're talking about statistical analysis effectively, making a tool that will help you to get nearer to an understanding of who's going to be at higher risk of getting cancer and who's going to be at lower risk of whatever cancer it is you're looking at. Um, But for me, I was much more interested in the fact that we were both using the, the word risk. But actually, the ways in which we're trained really changed the way we approach a word like risk. And when I started to work with some of the risk prediction modelers in Manchester, I realized that this was really the crux of the issue. So for example, you might have two clinicians. So I won't even say just a clinical assessment of what risk is. You might have a GP and then you'll have a genetic counselor. And they might even be using the same tool. They might be using a tool like CanRisk, for example, which is a tool that assesses for BRCA1, BRCA2 and other forms of cancer. But the GP might be sitting with a pen and paper in their lap with 10 minutes with their patient, no family history. And they'll say, tell me a little bit about why you are worried about cancer risk in your life. And they'll be trying to use the tool and they'll be trying to assess it very quickly. Uh, whereas a genetic counselor will have likely have a, a whole raft of information about a patient already. They'll have in excess oftentimes 45 minutes to spend on that. They'll have multiple tools at, at their disposal, can risk, but other tools as well. And they will then put all of these things together to come up with an understanding of the likelihood of cancer happening in that person's life. But then for the person that I was talking to, who was a rough sleeper talking to us about cancer risk in their life, they were very pithy about it. They said, I I do have a cough. I've been needing to go and get it checked. I lost my grandmother and my mother to cancer, but last night my sleeping bag was on fire. And if your sleeping bag is on fire, cancer becomes a different kind of risk in your life. It just, it's not something that's going to be addressed as immediately. So it's kind of a roundabout way of saying all of these versions of risk are important and they tell you something about what risk is in terms of cancer, but it doesn't necessarily relate to the way that we're using them together at the same time.
1: Is it easier to understand each group's methodology of defining risk rather than how they see it? I guess that's what you were just talking about, but rather than how they see the risk itself the methodology, the way they get to their definition? Is that easier to understand?
2: So I think methodology is, is crucial in this conversation because when we're approaching things, for example, I'm a qualitative researcher almost entirely. And when I first started the skills exchange with the University of Manchester team working on risk prediction modeling, I found that every other thing that they were telling me needed to be kind of expanded on so that I could really understand what they were aiming for. So they would explain to me that this number tells us risk because this process happened, this process that happened, and this process happened. But that wouldn't really give me a good grasp of what was at stake in terms of how risky and what's going into this number and how do we understand the people involved in this data. So we have different, profoundly different questions, although we oftentimes had overlap in terms of mutual desire to see greater representation, for example, uh, you would have that desire across most disciplines, I would say, because greater representation gives you greater accuracy in understanding a problem. And that's what we're kind of aiming at within cancer research and early detection more broadly.
1: But I can see that it's very easy to miscommunicate in that circumstance. And it's quite difficult to develop a shared language where everybody understands the same thing. And in fact, even day on day, that shared language could change and be different. So that's a real challenge.
2: Completely. Yeah. It's a real challenge, and I think that's what was what spurred us on to start to think creatively about how we could start to try to communicate risk in different ways in a single space, and that is what really happened when we came together to develop this MOOC, this online course. And I should say that it didn't start out to be a MOOC; it started out to be a skills exchange. We're was going to go to the University of Manchester and spend time with the risk prediction modeling team to learn what they did and how they did it. But of course COVID happened. And that meant that all of our interactions were really online. And this changed the nature of the relationship that we had. But in some ways it changed it in a very productive way even though it was frustrating at the time because it stretched it out. So it went from far longer. It was supposed to be three to six months and I think it ended up going 18 in the end. But what we ended up doing, because we couldn't even get together for our final conference because we went back into lockdown a week before that was set to start, we ended up doing it online and we recorded all of those presentations. And by recording all of those presentations, all of which used CanRisk, the tool CanRisk that I mentioned before, as a, a foundation for case study, so that we could kind of be speaking the same language or at least speaking through the same tool, we started to see Side by side, that this was the most interesting thing that had come out of the Scope Exchange that we could start to see some of the differences in the way that we approached risk and the outcomes that we had as a result, and also how much we contributed to one another's understanding of risk and
1: how. Really interesting. So we've said MOOC, we've used the term. So do you want to just define (laughs) to me what that is? What is a MOOC?
2: Yes, of course I will. And I will tell you what the rest of the world thinks a MOOC is, and that is a massive open online course, which simply means that it is an, you know, an expansive tool for learning that is available digitally online. Um, and it means that kind of anyone can log into it and use it. Now, we've been calling this a mini open online course, a mini MOOC, or just a MOOC, but with an extra M, because it's really, first of all, it's a pilot study right now. And it's something that we've been thinking with and about for for some time. But it's really a testing ground to see how um, effective this might be, specifically for uh, skilling up early career researchers who may have some knowledge of cancer research, may have some knowledge of processes of early detection, but may not have a real understanding across disciplines of how risk operates in these different areas, and potentially might even go into different areas of early detection research that they hadn't considered before as a result.
1: It's really interesting that it came about because of COVID almost, because it forced you into doing things digitally. And then suddenly it, yeah. you'd made resources that you could then use to do a MOOC. It's really, it's a positive that came out of a, you know, it's very difficult situation.
2: Yeah, no, I think it was. I mean, you know, we we can tell a Jessa story about anything that's really tragic. And, and And it had certain real drawbacks to not being able to be together. Um, The people I worked with in Manchester, I still haven't met. Um, But having said that, we do have something now that has come out of this collaboration that is is kind of lasting and, and quite exciting. So the presentations, each of us were charged with doing a 10 minute or less presentation on risk in our disciplines. And I then retroactively went back and edited these down further to be just about three minutes long in most cases. And we got Jenny Leonard, who is an amazing live illustrator, who does films of live illustrations and diagramming, to come in and draw live diagrams on film for us as she listened, as a, a person, listened to these different presentations. And that has created a kind of dynamic content that is the nut of what the MOOC is based on. So there are six three-minute lectures from actual early cancer, early detection, uh, research scientists in various disciplines from epidemiology, risk modeling, validation, clinical trials. I do a session on anthropology, and there is also patient and public involvement and engagement. And that's been really exciting to see that all come together and actually creates a sort of nice object that we can kind of share with other people.
1: Sure. And how has the MAP been funded?
2: So the International Alliance for Cancer Early Detection, ACED, was the funder for the skills exchange. And that was a very, very small amount of funding, but became very, very useful in over time because it meant that we could carry on the conversation and actually create a sort of infrastructure for the MOOC. So the materials, to be honest, to put together the initial materials and just sitting in the room together, that really wasn't It was kind of something that came through the funding. It was made accessible by the funding, but it wasn't expensive. It started with real just collaborative conversations. And of course, that is people giving up their time. And then Reese Grant and yourself have been kind enough to contribute to some of the infrastructural elements and actually using the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Centre website as the host point for this initial pilot. So we hope we will then apply for the next two sessions, the next two mini MOOCs to contribute to the Shared Risk, which is the name of the overall project now, the Shared Risk MOOC series, so that we can potentially carry it forward.
1: That's really um, exciting. So there's another two episodes of the, of the mini MOOC to, uh, to come, hopefully.
2: Well, we hope so. The uh, project I mentioned with my colleague Ignacia Artiaga and also Marion McDonald which took place from 2019 until 2021, actually has a a very small, self-made, Ignacia made it herself, website that has a lot of the video footage we took from various interlocutors in the field, talking about the way that risk, mental health, and circumstances of living intertwine to create uh, different kinds of risk. And so the Elusive Risks Project will likely comprise one of the next pieces, The second piece of it is a project called Represent, Ignacio Arteaga is also involved in and is connected to a number of partners in the United States at Knights Cancer Institute and in other ACE centers um, to look at representation of people in early cancer research.
1: And so you said the MOOC is for early career researchers. Can anyone access it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we hope people will. I think it's what's exciting for us about this project is that this is a starting point. And in fact, as part of the MOOC itself, we've created a feedback sheet, which really will be listened to because this is really a starting point for uh, looking at different elements of early cancer research that can be made much more accessible to a wider public. And also, I think it's important to understand that there are many people in the world, and I think you can tell from the story, I've just told you about my own career trajectory, who maybe would not have conceived of themselves as working in early cancer research, but in fact, who have significant contributions to make. And we hope that the kinds of work that we're doing on this and the kind of feedback that we hope a heterogeneous public will give us on the back of this move will allow us to make this even more accessible to more people. And we have really tried to make it as accessible as possible. I should say that though it is voiced by the lecturers, it also has full transcript for each lecture. So if you have access to English, you can access the content either way. The images are deliberately very, very simple. So they hopefully can be accessed by people who are listening, but maybe are not okay with Uh, academic language and jargon and um, you know there's the potential to develop other elements of it for example a lexicon that helps people to understand some of the more specialist word vocabulary stuff
1: sure and I'm glad you've mentioned the illustrations because I'd like to ask you where you found your illustrator and why you felt it was important to include the drawn animations in the MOOC
2: absolutely well when we were doing it for the sake of our own internal workshop. We used a sort of template that Glenn Martin, who is on the Manchester team, who's a risk prediction modeler, who was working on the validation element, he had put that together. And it was really interesting and it really did help us to think about it. And in fact, you'll see on the website, there's an arrow that then has all of the different disciplines squished all around it with all the different things that come up within early cancer research about risk. And that was a great thinking tool for us. But once we started to see everything kind of put together together, like that, we realized it was so much more complex and it was maybe not coming across in a way that people who hadn't been in the room would understand. And so this is something that is always true of diagrams. We make diagrams in the moment. Everybody goes, aha. And then you walk away and go, what were we trying to say with this? So the nice thing about having Jenny Leonard's art and her website is JennyLeonardart.com. She's got amazing projects that work in a very similar way is that she does these live diagrams and you can follow it as it's being made. So the words and the images coincide. And hopefully that helps to really get a hook into what these more complex concepts are and how they might operate in terms of risk in different people's lives or in different people's disciplines as well.
1: Sure. So what are the learnings that you would like people to take away from the MOOC? And tell me why it's important.
2: I think from my perspective, and I again, I would say this because I'm a social anthropologist who looks at communication and whether that's um, physical or or language. I I think it's really important to look at the ways that things interrelate. I think it's very important for people, even outside of cancer research, to think with, I mean, for example, we had the benefit of a tool that was given to us over the pandemic in the UK, and that was the curve, for example. And every day at four o'clock, if you tuned into the Prime Minister's speech during the height of the pandemic when everything was so full of uncertainty, while it didn't necessarily communicate the actual numbers of the day or what was exactly happening, the ability to have this kind of common shape in our lives to think with and to start to understand a little bit more about epidemiology, about the statistics we were seeing, about what this actually meant in terms of number of people who were ill or who were dying, these were really important things for us to understand as a population. I think if we take some time to really look at the ways in which specialist disciplines communicate those kinds of things, had they just stuck a a dome shape out there with numbers on it and various countries written underneath, I don't know how many people would have been able to really access the data that was being contained there, but by telling the story alongside the image and being able to connect it to other elements that were part of our human experience at that time, you start to get a broader picture of what it actually meant, what COVID was doing in people's lives, what the statistics meant, what people could understand from these things joined together. And I think that's what we're trying to do with this. Certainly my MO in approaching this question this way, saying let's break it down and see how to make something that feels so strange feel more familiar and, and more accessible.
1: Yeah, sure. So Kelly, what makes this mix special? What makes this one different from the norm?
2: I think what makes this particularly different is that you have six different early cancer scientists looking at risk from very different perspectives with very different disciplinary focuses. And what it really acknowledges is that when we are supposedly speaking the same words, we are actually speaking different languages. And I think that by virtue of the fact that we really tackle that head on, placing these side by side by side. Not only do you get a sense of what the differences are between the different disciplines, but you also get a sense of how these things interrelate and how each of our understandings of risk um, connect to one another's. In fact, we had early feedback from one person who's testing the MOOC who said, hang on, PPIE, Patient and Public Involvement and Engagement, that really sounds more like research design as opposed to being something that might come it's the final segment of the MOOC. And of course, that is true, That's the, but that's the aim. That's what we want people to understand, that if you have people in the room from the very beginning, from all different walks of life, then actually that is a real contribution to getting the heterogeneity right, getting different vantages right in the building, right from the beginning of the data sets to the models, to the validation, et cetera. So this is how we start to integrate greater knowledge into this process, I think.
1: How can we find this MOOC online? First of all, I
2: should say that the series is called Shared Risk, but this particular section is Risk Learning to Share, and it is available on the CRUK Cambridge Centre website under the Education tab.
1: So yeah, if you want a link straight there, look into the comments under under the podcast and the link will be there.
2: Fantastic. And I should also say that it's definitely worth completing because not only do you have the opportunity to contribute via your feedback to future iterations of the MOOC, we will take note of the fact that you've completed. This is the foundational uh, segment of the MOOC, and ultimately, you will be uh, given certification if you if you complete all three sections. So, we are really encouraging people to try it out, and we would love members of the general public to come in and and, and have a look at it as well, and also also certainly early detection researchers.
1: That's great. So just to finish off our chat today, I'd love to come back to your career and just ask you a few questions about why you decided to be an anthropologist. We've covered that already, I guess. So tell me a little bit more about that. And then tell me where you see anthropology, cancer research and risk taking us in the next 10 years or so.
2: I've been really excited by the enthusiasm I've been met with by many members of Early Cancer Institute, having been at the launch event fairly recently and seen how much appetite there is for understanding more about not just what risk is, but how people understand cancer in their lives and how this can potentially benefit early cancer research more broadly. And certainly Rebecca Fitzgerald has been very supportive of this work as have all of the members of the Cancer Research UK, Cambridge Centre. I think that anthropology has something unique to contribute within this conversation, because ultimately the aim of all early cancer researchers is to contribute to fewer deaths from cancer by finding it earlier. And I think all of these strides that we make within early cancer research are only as good as the communication that comes out to the publics we serve. And so I think that's where anthropology can make a real contribution because understanding different people's uh, worries about cancer, the ways that people approach risk of cancer, the ways that people approach screening programs, all these different elements are really important to have some kind of broader conversation about, in addition to amazing risk prediction tools, in in addition to amazing bench work and, and clinical findings. And for me, I'm just going to keep plugging away at understanding people not understanding one another. Hopefully I haven't contributed to that today, <laughs> <if I've laughs> clarified instead of things. So is
1: that, yeah. is that the direction of your research? Is that where you see your research going in the next 10 years?
2: Yeah, so I should say that my uh, early career Lieber Hume and Isaac Newton Trust Fellowship is around looking at communication breakdown in the UK following Brexit, austerity and COVID. So that is definitely something that is the central focus in my work now. And it's something that I want to continue working on and contributing to.
1: And then I just wanted just to confirm a couple of terms with you. So you've used the word epidemiology a lot today. Could you just for our listeners tell us what epidemiology means?
2: It's data driven. It's a quantitative study. And it really looks at the the frequency and the patterning of different determinants of health. And it helps us to understand things like risk factors in people's lives by virtue of huge data sets taken from members of a population, but that could be a country or a city, or it could be, you know, internationally based, depending on what you're trying to understand.
1: Or even a group of people?
2: Or a small group of people. But for the most part, it tends to be large scale understanding based on large data sets.
1: Brilliant. Thank you, Kelly. It's been a really interesting conversation about the MOOC and I'm really excited to see where the project takes you and to see the next episodes and uh, to work with you on the project. So thank you very much for joining me on this podcast today.
2: Thank you for having me, Ellie. It's been a pleasure.